Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, the Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Firstly, on this week's podcast, listeners have been responding to last week's episode in which we discussed the social responsibilities of the private equity industry. Uh, Don't forget, you too can write in by emailing podcast at globalcapital.com and we would very much like to hear from you. Um, One beloved listener wrote to say that if the private equity industry really cared about social responsibility, it would pay more tax. It's hard to imagine turkeys voting for Christmas, but I wondered, John, if you thought there was likely to be any pressure placed upon PE firms and its partners uh, from those that invest in them to pay a bigger share. After all, all obvious sarcasm aside, what institution does more for social spending than the government? Well, this is one of the most sensitive issues in in responsible investing, I think. Um, and perhaps sensitive is the wrong word because it's not one that, that a lot of people think about a lot of the time but it is one of the most tricky issues. Um, investors of all kinds, private equity and public, um, and you know, debt investors, they're all out to make money for their clients. So asking them to support the companies they invest in paying more tax is quite difficult. Um, and although you know, to most people in the street, paying a fair share of tax is clearly a very important social responsibility. Um, and companies like Amazon and the, you know, the other big uh, U.S. tech firms that pay very little um, do come in for public criticism. But I think I think very very slowly the debate is changing, and um, a few there are a few signs that investors are beginning to consider companies paying a fair share of tax as um, you know important. And and I think um, it, you know private equity probably won't be in the vanguard of that, but that you know they may get there in the end. It strikes me this this probably the argument runs something along the lines a slightly self serving argument and I I don't know if it's necessarily genuine, um, but the popular argument is always that the state is a very inefficient allocator of capital and uh, we're we're all better off allocating our own money um, as a as an argument against paying the tax, but um, there does seem to be a bit of a sea change in sentiment as you say isn't there where I think people you know it's only a few years ago that. Um, we would never have countenanced the idea that investors would, uh, as they're always telling us, um, do anything other than fulfil their fiduciary duty just to earn large returns, and that was their only only cause. Um, that's changed, and so perhaps this might too. Yes, I think I think it will in due course. Hmm. Well, uh, leaving that issue there, we turn now to this week's subject, which is the European government bond market. Lewis McClellan, our SSA editor, has written a couple of interesting pieces this week covering sovereign bond issuance across Europe and the influence the EU is having across both core and emerging markets. Hi Lewis, pleasure to have you on the pod as always. Uh, The pandemic has driven up government borrowing and therefore bond issuance to record levels in Europe. But the signs are that this might be about to fall again. Can you tell us a little bit about just how big the increase has been so far to get to this point? Yeah, it's been it's been quite a remarkable uh, change in, in borrowing habits uh, prompted by the pandemic. We're talking about um, 20% really, uh, that sort of supply. So I think uh, net 
government bond supply this year is set to be um, around 568 billion. Um, so you know we're 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 looking at about 20 percent at least uh, more than in previous years uh, when the pandemic was was not a factor. And what are the signs that that might come down now? So I think the big uh, the big indicator is budget deficits. The the aggregate uh, budget deficit across the European Union this year is about seven percent uh, down from seven point two percent last year. So uh, it's still still pretty elevated. Um, next year it's set to be set to be much smaller. Uh, Germany uh, is going all the way down to two point seven percent from from around seven percent and. Uh, uh, Spain, uh, I think, is mid eight percent range and is going down to about five percent. So um, these are all forecasts. This is uh, this is plans, but uh, assuming there's no serious adverse shocks, we should be looking at smaller deficits uh, and less needs to be financed in the in the bond market. Well, that that of course makes makes perfect sense and exactly what you would expect as Europe recovers from the from the pandemic. Um, but as always in the eurozone and uh, across European government bonds in general, um, borrowing and borrowing limits is an inherently political issue. And uh, longer term, I, I understand there's probably uh, other moves afoot to bring down borrowing, um, including the EU's Stability and Growth Pact, which might be making a reappearance. Um, can you can you tell us briefly, Lewis, or remind us rather what what that is and uh, who's pushing for it to make a comeback? Yeah, so the stability and growth pact is um is the main uh, constraint on uh, EU member states' budgets. Um, the idea is that you're supposed to have uh, a deficit of no more than three percent, and uh, um, that's three percent uh, of GDP, right? Three percent of GDP. Yeah. that's right. Yeah, and a debt to GDP ratio of no more than sixty uh, percent. Um, that was uh, suspended uh, under what they call the general escape clause, which allows people to spend more money than that in, in extreme circumstances to protect the economy. Um, that, that present, that is uh, scheduled to, to reappear in 2023, the start of 2023, but uh, it's, been a, it's been, even before the pandemic, people were not really adhering to these as strictly as they were supposed to be. And uh, it's, it's, it's an instrument that was uh, widely regarded as a means of... Uh, Enforcing austerity on EU member states uh, under under the guise of fiscal discipline, but that that's a much less fashionable idea than it was uh, in the aftermath of the eurozone debt crisis. So um, it's becoming more and more likely that this will be uh, reformed in some way, and uh, it won't be the same uh, the same uh, issues. There won't be the same requirements that it that it places when it does come back. So who's pushing for it to come back? And are they pushing for it to come back as it always was? Or are they, or do they accept there will have to be changes? So there's eight countries in particular that have signed a common views document, uh, which is uh, they are open to changes, but uh, they talk about simplifications and uh, adaptations to make it more transparent and, and apply the rules better. They don't really acknowledge that... Uh, the, the fiscal limits themselves um, are are fiscally inefficient or, or economically as damaging. So, and it's it's eight countries that you would probably uh, 
probably the ones you get, right? Austria, Denmark, uh, Czech Republic, Finland, Latvia, Netherlands, Slovakia, Sweden. It's it's uh, it's Northern European countries with a with a long record of uh, fiscal sustainability. But there, there's one key absentee from from that list that uh, in years gone by you would expect to be there, and that's Germany. Um, Germany has always uh, been been one of the, the staunchest supporters of uh, fiscal limits within the European Union, uh, and it obeys them itself. It has uh, very um, very stringent fiscal limits on its own on its own borrowing, much more stringent than the EU limits. So, why is Germany not going along with the usual sort of fiscally conservative pack? Well, the pandemic really changed Germany's uh, Germany's attitude to it. They they supported uh, for the first time uh, the the prospect of the EU being able to borrow on its own account, um, backed by the member states, which obviously includes Germany. Uh, most most importantly, is the the best credit in in the European Union. Um, Germany seems to have had a, a realization that uh, budget constraints will prolong the economic consequences of the recession. It opened up its own debt limits, uh, its own debt break, as it's known, uh, to, to allow more spending to, to protect the economy with the, from the coronavirus. And it seems to be accepting that um, the same is necessary in Europe and, and that this could be necessary for quite a long time. There's another big factor here, though, isn't there, Lewis, which is Germany is uh, going through an election this month and, and quite an important one too in its in its history. Yes, it certainly is. It's going to be uh, the first election since 2005 where Germany will have a, a new chancellor, whatever the result, because uh, Angela Merkel is, is stepping back. Some of the, the opponents, the, the Greens most notably, are, are much more in favour of uh, a fiscally expansive approach. So uh, if, if the Greens or the SDP are, are able to form a coalition that... that, that um, that takes government, uh, they could uh, pursue a policy that, that means more bond supply uh, in, from Germany specifically, but also from Europe in general. I guess we should point out that, uh, you know, there, there are, in terms of the, uh, what this will all end up meaning for the government bond market itself, the European Central Bank is still buying um, an awful lot of this debt, isn't it? And taking that onto its books. Um, so you imagine if there was less being issued, they would simply be buying less, which is, of course, what they, you know, they sort of indicated there may be some tapering to their own quantitative easing program. And of course, countries can still fund themselves through the EU's uh, Relief and Recovery Fund. Yeah, certainly. Um, the, the ECD has... Uh, you know, we've talked about this huge increase in government borrowing, but it's been compensated for by, by a huge increase in ECB purchases. Uh, that will likely continue next year. Um, the, the forecasts I'm seeing are for uh, a small overspill such that the ECB tapering will uh, will slightly outpace the uh, decline in government bond supply. But we're really talking about... Uh, net supply, supply net obesity purchases being in the region of 30 to 80 billion, which is, it sounds a lot, but in the context of a five to 600 billion market, it's really not that big. You mean 30 to 80 billion for the whole year? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this year, uh, the, uh, the ECB has completely absorbed the net supply of the European government bond market. And that's been the case for a couple of years now. Uh, next year, the tapering will mean 
likely. As, you know, we're, there's some assumptions about what the ECB will do here, but uh, what economists are expecting is only a very small uh, net supply of government bonds, uh, 30 to 80 billion. And given that the ECB seems committed to keeping interest rates very low and stable for a long time, uh, it seems almost um, unusually stable and sort of predictable period for rates, doesn't it? Yes, uh, that's that's true. I, although, um, you know, ECB uh, speculations about where the ECB will go with tapering have, have caused... Um, you know, fairly substantial moves in the in the boom curve, um, but uh, you know that that's always the case, uh, and it's it's on a historical basis within a fairly narrow range, really. I just want to come back to the uh, oh, I mentioned earlier the relief from recovery fund um, and the money that the EU is distributing around Europe to help its member states with the pandemic. Um, and I thought it was interesting um, away from the sort of core. Uh, developed European government bond markets this week. Uh, Hungary um, was was out with uh, three absolutely storming storming bond issuances. Um, can you tell us a bit about that, Lewis? Because they 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 it's quite interesting the reasons why they're having to come and come and bring this bring this debt to the market. This was their first uh, first dollar debt issuance in seven years. Um, can you tell us a bit about the background of what drove the drove the trade? Yeah, it is an interesting trade. Um... So Hungary, as you say, has has not been in the dollar market for seven years. It came back to the euro market only last year after uh, several years without uh, without dealing the euro market. Um, it's had uh, it's been pursuing an explicit policy of of reducing its reliance on on FX debt. Um, you know, relying more on its domestic investor base. But uh, as with everyone, uh, having to you know, deficit, the deficit went up hugely in the in the pandemic, and uh, that meant it was time to revisit the international bond markets. Um, the the other side to this is that, um, well, all EU member states are are expecting uh, money from the recovery and resilience facility this year. Uh, Hungary has not yet received uh, this fund this funding it's due for about just under a billion euros uh, of, of pre-financing from the uh, from the recovery and resilience facility and um, it seems like it will get it but the the delay is a political one uh, Hungary uh, has butted heads with the European Commission over issues around corruption and the rule of law which the EU uh, are making uh, Hungary's uh, acceptance of you know EU recommendations there uh, conditions of it receiving the recovery and resilience facility cash. And so I suppose uh, I mean you wrote this week that uh, people in the market were telling you that um, this is almost like bridge financing. I mean, of course, the the amount of money they borrowed is is huge, and they borrowed it for an incredibly long term. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite interesting to note that even in a spat over what might seem something quite so fundamental as corruption and the rule of law, things that would normally send investors scurrying for the hills, um, they don't seem to have batted an eyelid in this case. No, they certainly haven't. Um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's worth acknowledging, though, that the, the recovery and resilience facility cash, that's a billion, and, and, and Hungary have borrowed four and a half billion this, this week. So there's a, there's a lot of other uh, things that they want to do with that money. Um, uh, one is uh, potentially buy Budapest Airport um, from from private investors, and then the rest of it is is basically just uh, pre financing for their 2022 budget. 
um, which, you know, I think they just, uh, they spotted a good window in the market. Conditions are extremely good. Their, their spreads are very tight. Um, and uh, given, you know, the Federal Reserve is expected to start tapering later this year, uh, they're expecting funding conditions might not be so good uh, in years to come. Poland is in a similar uh, position, is it not, with regard to its sort of a tussle with the EU over matters of rule of law and other things in terms of getting money from the um, relief and recovery facility? Did you get a sense that Poland will now follow Hungary into the bond markets? Poland is actually in in a worse position in that uh, it's in it's infringements have been severe enough for the for the European Commission to open infringement proceedings against Poland, which uh, which could result in fines of, of a million euros a day, which is uh, just quite substantial. Um, investors were, were split on whether we're going to see Poland in the bond market. I think uh, definitely bankers will be pitching Poland to try and get them get them in. They're, they're a very well-liked credit and uh, there would definitely be demand. But... Um, and and it's it's fair to say that Poland is expecting a lot more a lot more money than Hungary. Uh, so there there is some possibility, but um, uh, it doesn't seem like there's there's any urgent need uh, for this money at the moment. Lewis, you mentioned Poland and Hungary, but um, it makes me think about what you were saying about deficits coming down because aren't there quite a lot of countries in the EU that are actually not doing amazingly economically? After all, the recovery from COVID has not been stellar. So how can we be so sure that the deficits are actually going to fall? Because bringing them down is really quite quite a hard thing to do. Yes, it is, uh, it is historically pretty difficult to, to bring deficits, deficits down. I think there's, there's, one, there's one advantage, which is that... Um, you know, the, well, the recovery is, is proceeding, uh, proceeding apace, but um, the fact is uh, that that will be evenly distributed. For countries where their economies are growing quickly, it will be relatively easy to, um, uh, to, to bring deficits down um, because if GDP, uh, if GDP grows, then you don't have to change your spending habits for your deficit to fall as a percentage of GDP. But... Um, Yes, that that does rely on on economies growing quickly, and and uh, that's something that you know Hungary and Poland are are experiencing, but uh, but other countries will not necessarily, and um, that is going to be a challenge. The, the the stability and growth pact is at the moment scheduled to come in in its present form in twenty twenty three, and if it does, then uh, countries that have uh, deficit of more than 3% of GDP are supposed to reduce that at a pretty aggressive rate, a uh, 20th uh, per year. So um, that would cause a pretty meaningful decline in government bond supply and, and a pretty sharp return to austerity if uh, if that was the form in which it was reintroduced. One other thing we've talked about before a few months ago is the idea that the EU could make a ruling that investments in green infrastructure or or other sort of pro-climate investments were not counted towards budget deficits. Is that likely to happen? Yes, I think that is uh, an idea that that is that's got some legs. To be honest, John, um, it was discussed discussed at this week's uh, meeting of, uh, of EU finance ministers, um, and it's something that um, the EU has kind of developed all the tools that it needs to implement something like this. The recovery and resilience facility is supposed to be spent on 
37% green projects. So they've had to develop the capacity to save what's green and the oversight to, uh, to ensure that it's spent on what it's supposed to be spent on. So it's a relatively easy step from there to uh, not count that money towards uh, budget deficits under the Stability and Growth Pact. So plenty more evidence there of uh, the far-reaching consequences of the pandemic on European government debt levels and the implications that that will have for uh, the government debt market in Europe. Uh, Thank you to John and Lewis for joining me for this week's podcast and to Gerald Hayes, our producer, for editing it and putting it all together. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. It's free. There's a new episode out every Friday afternoon, which we publish to all the major platforms. So if you just go onto any of them and search for Global Capital, you should find us. Uh, I've tried it on Spotify. It definitely works there. And the same on Podcast Addict. Um, Don't forget, uh, if you'd be so kind, to leave a glowing five-star review too. That helps other people find the podcast who might be craving um, a fix of uh, Capital Markets Audio every week, but are sadly denied it at the moment. As I, as I mentioned at the top of the email, at top of the podcast, um, do write in too. Do get in touch with us and let us know what you think. Uh, just email podcast at globalcapital.com. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. So thank you for the listening and goodbye. Goodbye.